Now Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the directions for constructing this tabernacle. The Lord wants this tent to be built so that he can dwell with his people. An amazing declaration of God's desire to be in the midst of these people. It's further critically noted by, by God in, in chapter 25 and verse 9 that you make everything according to the pattern that God is showing Moses on the mountain. And the writer of Hebrews clues us into the fact that what was going on with this tabernacle and this tent that was being made is that it was a copy of a heavenly reality of the heavenly places themselves where God is. And so with Moses then on the mountain and chapters 25 through 27 of Exodus, a description about the tabernacle and all the details that go into it so that God can be with his people. Uh, Another important point is being taught to us in chapters 28 to 31. Not only do we need a tabernacle for God to dwell with his people, but we need a priesthood for God to be able to dwell with his people. And so the attention now turns to the priests and what they are going to wear and what they will do in being able to stand between God and the people of Israel. And so tonight, if you have your Bibles, you turn to Exodus chapter 28 and we'll begin our study there in Exodus 28. As chapter 28 opens, God decrees that not anyone can be a priest, but it's going to only be the sons of Aaron in verse 1. And verse 2 tells us that the clothing that is going to be put on Aaron's sons as priests are going to be something that would show their dignity, their glory and honor, that they are now priests of God. And the clothing that they are wearing is distinguishing them for the task that they are to be given. And so verse 2 is kind of that warm up of here's why I'm going to tell you all the details about the clothing of of these priests. is because they're supposed to be set apart and shown to be an honor and to be dignified before the people. Uh, Instead of reading... All of the details, because this would then be here a while to be able to go through all of the the details. I want to just turn your attention to some of the key things that we observe about the clothing that they are wearing here in chapter 28. The first thing I think is important to to get across and see in this picture of of who these people are and and what they are wearing. Uh, First comes to us in verse 12 of Exodus chapter 28. It says, you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Notice this really neat picture and beautiful picture. There are these two onyx stones that verse 9 describes that are being placed on the ephod of the priests. And the purpose of those two stones is that you have the names of the tribes, the sons of Israel, engraved on those stones so that when the priest would go in and do his service before God, he's actually carrying the names of the sons of Israel into the very place of God, into that holy place. And so here is this beautiful picture then of being able to carry the names of Israel, the people of Israel on the shoulders of the high priest into the holy places. In a similar way, you'll notice in verse 21, 
There shall the twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be signets, each engraved with its name the twelve tri- for the twelve tribes. Notice not only are the names engraved on the two onyx stones that were on the shoulders, but then also there are twelve stones on the breastplate. And each of the sons of Israel's names were written on that. And listen to the purpose behind that in verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So notice you have the priests carrying the names of the people of Israel on the shoulders and the priests carrying the names of the children of Israel on the very heart he uses as he would go then before the presence of God. Carrying these names before God and in both places it says that it would bring them to remembrance before the Lord. That this is the people of Israel being able to come in and God remembering His people as the priests were doing these regular offerings and, and, and daily functions. In fact, you get a little bit more about this over in verse 30, 37. Verse 37, in speaking about this gold piece that's going to be put on his head. He says in verse 37, you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue and it shall be in the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Here's another interesting picture is that now as Aaron is doing his tasks and doing his work in the holy places, he has a turban on his head and the purpose of the turban being on his head and this gold plate being put in front is that if the people of Israel in their offerings and their gifts of holy things would be defiled that the high priest is able to carry those sins and remove the defilement. That's what is so fascinating about verse 38 is here are the people of Israel bringing their holy gifts and yet here is Aaron bearing the guilt for many of the holy things that they're bringing in. Wait a minute, they're holy. But here is already an essence of even though the things are holy that the people are bringing, they're still defiled because you need a high priest to be able to stand in between God and the people. And we've seen that image a number of times in the book of Exodus. This idea of our defilement, even as clean as we may ever try to be before God, we're still defiled before Him. And we still need a priest to stand in our midst. In fact, the ideal is laid out for us there in verse 36. You'll notice what was written on the gold plate. That is on the turban of the high priest as he's moving around the sanctuary, as it says upon there, holy to the Lord. This is the ideal of the high priest. This is what he represents. He is holy to the Lord and he then offers these things before God. And in this picture, well, I want you to notice something that's really great about the imagery. So here we have all of this of bearing the names and coming in the presence of God and bringing the names not only on the shoulders, carrying them in, but also carrying them in the breastplate, carrying them on his heart and carrying in the guilt of the people and the offerings that they bring with holy 
eyes of the Lord on his forehead. And I want you to think about this imagery as it's brought forward into the New Testament when the writer of Hebrews always speaks to us as here is Jesus, our priest. Here is Jesus, our great priest, our high priest, the one who goes into the very presence of God. And notice one of the images of what that means for him to go in the very presence of God is that he carries the names of the people with him and deals with the defilements that they have in their offerings. One of the purposes of the high priest is that he would go in before God and make intercession for them and bringing in the names of for God. And that's what Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 pictures of why we have this great high priest. And we see consequently, in speaking of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Notice the picture that's given. What is Jesus doing there as this high priest? He is always there to make intercession on our behalf. That's why we need an eternal high priest. is so that he is always in the presence of God, always bearing our names, always dealing with the guilt, the names always on his heart as he brings these things before God. And what a, an amazing scene that gives to us Because what Jesus does is bring in our names into the presence of God all day, every day, bearing the guilt that we have from the things that we've offered so that we may be found acceptable before God. And Jesus is the ideal, holy to the Lord. He is the one that is holy to the Lord. And thus he can stand in the very presence of God and be able to function in that place for us. And so that's the first picture that's given to us about the high priest. But then when you come to chapter 29, you might find chapter 29 stunning. I do. Here we have talked about the beauty of the garments that they are wearing. And we have onyx stones engraved with the names of Israel. And we have a breastplate on engraved with the name. We have fine linens that have been placed upon this high priest. He is wearing a turban with a blue cord and fastened to it is gold plate engraved. Holy to the Lord is on his forehead. You can imagine the whole point as chapter 28 verse 2 says, so that he would be seen in honor and dignity. And now chapter 29 opens. And as he's wearing these beautiful colored yarns and linens and onyx stones and precious gems and turban and gold plate for him that says holy to the Lord. Look at what is happening now in verse 10 of chapter 29 of Exodus. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull, and you will kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour at the base of the altar. So first act you have. So now here's what I want you to do. I want you to slaughter a bull, take the blood, and you're going to put it on the horns of this altar, the altar that was within this tabernacle that they're going to have. And then I want you to take the rest of the blood and I want you to put it all over the base of that altar. I want you to just pour it all in there. Then what I want you to do 
As if you move down a few verses, verse 15, and you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram and take it, its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. And then you will cut the ram in pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them in with the pieces of the head and burn the whole ram on the altar as a burnt offering to the Lord, as a pleasing aroma, the food offering to the Lord. So after the bowl is done, I want you to take one of the rams and I want you to throw the blood against the altar from that ram. Here they are in these fine clothes as they're now throwing the blood against the altar. Verse 19, you shall take the other ram that the Aaron and son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of the blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and in his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Chapter 28 spends all this time talking about the beauty of this garment that Aaron and his sons are wearing. Only to turn around and say, now go take a bull and kill it and take that blood. And I want you to now put it on the altar and fill up the base of it and put it on the horns of the altar. And then I want you to take a ram and I want you to kill it and take all of its blood and throw it against the side of the altar. And then when you're done that, I want to take you another ram and put that blood on your earlobe and on your toe and on your thumb and throw the blood against the side of the altar. And then with that blood that's now built up in the base of this altar, along with oil, I want you to take that and I want you to throw it upon Aaron. And now he's holy. You go, he's a mess. I mean, you just killed three animals. That's not a clean job. And then if that weren't seemingly unclean enough, to now turn and throw the blood all upon him with his holy to the Lord on his forehead, the breastplate with the precious gems and the onyx stones on the shoulders. He's covered in blood. What's the point? Why are we doing all this? This seems to be out of place. We want to keep him pristine, right? We want to keep you holy to the Lord should be, you know, nothing out of place. In that. And we've just thrown blood all over it. Except a powerful message. That blood is going to be required for God to be with his people. God's goal is I want to dwell with my people. One, we need a temple. We need a sanctuary. We need a tabernacle. We need a tent. And two, I need priests, but not just priests. We need blood. Blood is going to be required for God to come down to be able to be with his people. Blood is the very big deal that comes out of this text and pulls forward throughout the scriptures. In fact, when you come into verses 36 to 42, it's going to say that for atonement every day, they're going to take a bowl and two lambs and do this. It's hard for me just to envision not only what that altar looked like after day by day, the sacrifices and the blood of the animals being put on that day after day after day, but then the clothing of the priests 
day after day after day, putting animals into that altar as atonement for the people. That was not a clean outfit, but represented this image of blood before all the people as they would do this act of service for the people so that atonement could be made. Now, why is God doing all that? Look at verse 41, chapter 29, verse 41. The other lamb, speaking of this, this two lambs and this bowl that would be each day. Verse 41, the other lamb that you shall offer at twilight shall offer with a grain offering and a drink offering and in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel. And it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see what God now says is there going to be the result of all of this. Here is all this blood and the sacrifices and the animals. Why are we doing all of this? But verse 41 is this. This is a food offering. We have seen this message again and again of God eating with his people. Here again is this covenantal meal being enforced again. As I can eat with my people and enjoy them with this meal of eating and drinking. Which then means in verses 42 and 43. Notice he says, I can meet with the people. And I am going to speak with him. In fact, he describes the altar as the place where God meets his people. This is the place of blood. And on this altar, now God can come down and the people can come. And this is the the idea of a meeting place between God and the people. The altar where the blood is, where there's been just poured in this basin. Blood is needed. So that verses 45 and 46, notice what he says there in verse 45. I will dwell with my people now. This is what is needed. This is what is necessary. We need a a, a tabernacle. We need a priest. We need blood. And in doing so, now God is able to have a relationship with the people, to be in covenant with the people, to be able to meet with them, to speak with them, to eat and drink with them, to be able to dwell with them. All of these are required, but only through blood can it happen. Without blood... God cannot be with his people and God cannot speak with them and God cannot meet with them and God cannot be in covenant fellowship with them. There is the necessity of blood. And so this is the imagery that comes out of this, because here we have made these people, these priests, and they look so beautiful in all that they've done and all that they're wearing. And now all of a sudden we've just put blood all over them to try to communicate how essential blood is to this. That's what Hebrews 9 and verse 12 speaks so amazingly of this atonement scene and speaking of Jesus that he entered once for all into the holy places, but not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. What you have then is the image of now we have a high priest, but the blood that is on him is not the blood of animals. It's his own blood that was required 
to be able to bring this about. And so thus Exodus is giving us this picture that it is only through the blood of Christ that we're able to have communion with God. It is only through the blood of Christ that God can meet with us and speak with us and dwell with us. His blood was needed. The blood of animals was insufficient, but merely a foreshadowing of what would be necessary of a great high priest to come in before the very presence of God, carrying his own blood. Thus the writer of Hebrews says, securing our eternal redemption. There's our atonement that is made so that God can be with us. Chapter 30, the scene keeps going and talking about the things of the tabernacle and what the priests are going to do. The articles of the tabernacle are are fascinating. In chapter 30, he begins with with the altar of incense. And the description that's given to us about the altar of incense is that it's placed right in front of the curtain that separated the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant would be and the holy place. And the reason why it was there is so that as the incense would be burning on that altar, the smoke would always fill the most holy place. That's why it would sit right in front of that curtain. And we're told in the text that it was supposed to burn constantly. Day and night that altar was to burn. And the imagery is amazing because it is the picture of God always being there. The smoke in that room is a picture of the cloud of God's glory always being with them. It is a representation of what we've seen on the mountain at Sinai. When God has come down on Sinai, what do we see but the glory of God and a cloud coming down and is filled with fire and smoke. And we have described the tabernacle as the moving Mount Sinai. And so as they would move through the wilderness, you would have this altar of incense always burning, always signifying the presence of God with His people that right there behind the curtain, there is the smoke that is behind there showing that God's with His people. His very presence that we saw up on the mountain is here in this very room. And they would know that God is there. And so the altar of incense is given with that picture of God with his people every step of the way as they would move through the wilderness. In verses 11 through 16, another picture of atonement is given. I am fascinated at how many different angles God uses to picture what atonement looks like for the people. We've seen it with the blood of bulls and animals and things like that. Here's another picture. In verse 12, he says that any time a census of the people of Israel was taken, then a ransom for their lives needed to be made if you numbered them, so that no plague will come upon them when you number them. Verse 13, each one who is numbered in the census shall give half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And notice then in verse 14, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the offering, uh, the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel. And when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, 
You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord as to make atonement for your lives. Notice the picture that God gives. If you take a census, your life needs to be ransomed. And if you take a census and you count the people and you do not ransom lives by paying this half shekel, there'll be a plague that'll strike the people. Interesting knowledge for the future. With future census that happen. Because what God demands is that if we're going to start looking at the lives of people, then a payment needs to be made to atone for sins. There's a price that has to be paid. And notice it's the equal price. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It didn't matter if you were poor. It didn't matter who you were. There's a great picture here of you need to have somebody then pay this atonement money. I am always captured by the frequency of the New Testament that constantly describes Jesus as the ransom or redemption. And it's hearkening to this idea. Your lives are at stake. Your lives are owed to God. And here is this beautiful picture, but God has sent His Son to redeem His people. We use that phrase a lot and often equate redemption to forgiveness, but think of redemption in terms of like, you know, it used to be when I was a kid, but really can't, doesn't, nobody wants to do this anymore. You don't get enough out of it. Boy, back when I was a kid, it was actually worth collecting as many glass bottles as you can. Because on the bottom it would say, I lived in California, it would say, CA, California, redemption, and it would give you a number, five cents, ten cents. You gather up all these things and you take it in and they buy back those articles for that price. That's what redemption is all about. It's what you're being redeemed. Same thing with a ransom. What is happening in a ransom? But a payment is being made for the life of an individual. Notice what is happening here in this image. Is that if we ever count the people, and we are counting the lives and souls of people, God says there needs to be redemption. People need to understand that atonement must be made for their lives. A price must be paid so that atonement can be made. Ephesians 1 is just one of the many places the New Testament describes. In Him we have redemption through His blood. How were we bought? 1 Peter does the same thing in chapter 1. You were not redeemed with gold and silver and those kinds of things, but with the precious blood of Christ. His blood is the redemption price. He's paying the price for us. Our lives are owed because of the sin, the great debt that stands against us. Jesus pays a price for us. And so here is this imagery here in chapter 30 of an atonement price, an atonement money that must be paid for the people any time a census was taken. In verses 17 through 21... There's a bronze basin that must be put out front as well. A very simple image. 
bronze basin full of water, what do we need? Now, those priests need to wash themselves. They'll be constantly washing themselves as they perform their duties and their acts of service. The Scriptures over and over again use that image for us of coming near to God with our bodies washed with pure water. Imagery over and over again about our need for cleansing. We need to be washed. We even sing songs that talk about the necessity of us being washed. And so here is this idea as well that the, the tabernacle is setting up. It is being pre Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and their feet before, they, before they'll go into that tent of meeting that they must always be washed to come into the presence of God. Notice how varied these images are about where we stand before God. We need blood. We need sacrifice. We need atonement money. We need redemption. We need washing. God's giving us all of these pictures to try to help us get a full idea of what is going to be required for God to be with His people. What it's going to take, what it's going to cost for us to be able to be with His people. I want you to observe one other thing before we then tie some pieces together. You have then the need for the oils as the rest of chapter 30 describes. Chapter 31 then begins to describe these two individuals who are now going to be used by God to be the craftsmen to build the various aspects of the tabernacle and the various articles of it. And notice if you have a header in your Bible at verse 12, God comes around again to the Sabbath. You know, God already gave all the directions about the Sabbath back in chapter 20. And what's interesting is that God now gives the Sabbath law again. And a little bit later, He's going to give it yet again before we leave the book of Exodus. I mean, this is Moses on the mountain just getting this message again and again and again. And what we are already seeing is the significance of this Sabbath. They needed to keep this. It was a memorial between God and the people. Exodus and Deuteronomy described the Sabbath was to remind them how they were slaves in Egypt and God had brought them out. You'll notice here in this text, it tells us in verse 13 that the purpose of the Sabbath, notice it says at the end, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I've made you holy. What do you say? I've made you different. You've been set apart. The Sabbath was to be a regular reminder to them how they're not like the nations, how they're not like the rest of the peoples, that this weekly observance would remind them of what God had done for them and to remind them that God had made them holy and had set them apart to be His special people. What a great scene that's given to there as he would round out that discussion to remind his people of who they are. At the end of all of this, notice then what happens in verse 18. Speaking of God, he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on, the, on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. That is quite an ending to the scene of Moses being up on the mountain. What God does now is He gives Moses two copies of the covenant 
that would be written in stone. It was common in ancient Near Eastern cultures and times that you would have a treaty. And when you had any kind of covenant or treaty, you would provide a copy of the covenant to both parties. You'd provide a copy of the covenant to the vassal as well as to the sovereign. You had two copies that would be in place. And here are two copies then that are being given. And the point of contact is even more amazing because we know where they're going to put these two. They're going to put these two copies in the Ark of the Covenant. This is the place of God meeting His people at the place of mercy. Here is God's end of the covenant. He has a copy. And here's our copy. Here's the people of Israel, their copy. And where's the meeting place? Remember, we've spent some time in Exodus in our Wednesday study talking about what sits over top. Those two tablets of stone is a mercy seat, an atonement lid. And God says, this is the place where I can be with you. This is the place where I will meet you there. And here is that image again that's given to us. Is that this is the place where God meets His people. Thus the Ark of the Covenant possesses the two copies of the testimony. And would be placed within the Ark of the Covenant. But you can't walk away from the end of verse 18, can you? Written in stone by the finger of God. That's quite a thought. What comes to your mind when you think of God etching in stone with His finger? I mean, have you ever tried to do your finger on stone? You know, and you know, against your kid, like in the concrete. You know, kind of, that, that hurt. <laughs> That's not. The idea here is amazingly powerful because this isn't the first time we've actually seen the finger of God. If you remember back during the plagues, as the plagues are unfolding, you remember the magicians are beginning to plead with Pharaoh, you've got to let the people go. You're going to just decimate us and wipe us out. What the magicians say is, this is the finger of God. You need to let them go before we all die. It's the very finger of God. The idea of the finger of God is not for us to go, well, God somehow has a finger and He you know, wrote out these Ten Commandments. It is an image of the power of God. By His very finger, He's destroying Egypt. By His very finger, He is writing into stone His commandments and covenant. It is a symbol of the power of God when you speak of the arm of God the hand of God, or even the very finger of God. Now what is, I think, so amazing about this is here you have now the finger of God is not being seen in just simply, here's plagues. You know, here that's the finger of God. You know, people are dying. But you see the power of God now in His covenant. In his very words, the finger of God is observed. This is what the New Testament keys in on all the time. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. That the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The words of God, the message of God is the finger of God. It is the power of God. 
This is why the scriptures talk about how powerful the word of God is. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 4 verse 12, the word of God is active and living. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and even discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Here is this picture of the power of the word of God. It is the very finger of God. It reveals who he is. But I want you to think about the biggest idea of what the New Testament then offers for us in this. Under the Old Covenant, the covenant was written by the finger of God and etched into two tablets of stone. And then what God does is He makes a promise and says... There's a new covenant that's coming. But I'm not going to etch it in stone this time. I'm going to etch it with my finger on your heart. The finger of God writing it on the hearts of people. Jeremiah 31 verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart. This is hearkening to Exodus. I'm going to make a new covenant. Well, when God made the first covenant, what did he do? But he wrote it with his very finger into the tablet of stone. He says, this time I'm going to write a new covenant, not on stone. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to put it within you and I will be your God and you will be my people. And I want to just end with this question and then answer. So how does God write his covenant on our hearts? Because it's quite a picture. Before, we can see clearly, okay, well, he wrote the tablets himself. But he says, I'm not going to do it like that this next time. When I bring this new covenant, I'm going to write it on their hearts. How would he do that? I submit to you that the way that God writes his powerful words on our hearts with his finger is through Christ and all that he's accomplished. That when we see Jesus as our perfect high priest that stands in the holy before the Lord with our very names on his shoulders and our very names on his heart standing there in the presence of God. When we see Jesus in that light, the finger of God etches into our hearts a greater love for him. When we see Jesus as our high priest who enters into the presence of God, not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood, so that we can have communion with God, that we can meet God, we can speak with God, that God can dwell with us. When we see Jesus in that light, the finger of God is etching his covenant on our hearts. When we see Jesus paying the atonement price through his blood, redeeming our lives from death, the finger of God etches into our hearts a deeper devotion for him. 
when we see Jesus as the tabernacle, the temple of God, that by him we are able to have full access to God, that through Jesus he tears down that curtain that stands between us and him so that we can boldly come before the throne of God, the finger of God then etches into our hearts a greater zeal for the relationship for him. What God is getting at is I'm going to etch this in their hearts because I'm going to do such an amazing thing in Christ that they'll want to obey me. I'm going to write it on their very heart. And the more that we look at Jesus and see him for who he is and what he's done for us, the more the love of God, a zeal for God and a devotion for God will be etched into our hearts. There is no magic button for a deeper faith. There is no magic pill to take for a deeper love or a stronger fight against sin, except that we would have our faith come by hearing the word of Christ. That is how it is etched into our hearts. I am excited about studying Mark with you because it is another opportunity to see Jesus and let it write onto our hearts who he is. As the Apostle Paul would say in his little summary of the whole idea about who Jesus is, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, in speaking of Christ, for in Him, every one of God's promises is a yes. And for this reason is through Him that we say amen to the glory of God. The Apostle Paul recognized Every single thing that God ever promised or ever said had its fulfillment in Christ and in no other. That all of the promises of God have their yes in Him. And to have the power of God, the finger of God, to write on our hearts His very laws simply requires us to see Jesus. To see who he is. To have a greater focus on what he's done. And a greater appreciation for these images that come out. About how he is a great high priest. Who pays the atonement price. Who sheds his own blood. Who tears down the curtain. Who becomes the tabernacle. So that we can speak with God. Meet with God see God, and be with God eternally. And the book of Exodus was just giving us a snapshot of the amazing things that was going to happen when Christ came. We'll sing an invitation song now, and we invite you to come to a glorious Lord and Savior Jesus who has become all things that we need so that we could be forgiven. So that we could have communion with God. That we could have fellowship with Him. We could have relationship with Him. Everything we need is found in Christ. It is our encouragement to you to take the opportunity tonight to devote yourself to God. If you have been struggling with sin, you have been struggling with your faith, you have been struggling in your walk with God, I want you to see that God presents a simple solution. It doesn't mean it's not hard to do, but it is a simple solution. See Jesus. More time with Jesus. More time in His Word. 
and let that knowledge transform your heart. Let it write itself on your heart. And God promises he will be your God and you will be his people. Will you turn to him tonight? And if you haven't been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, tonight's the night. Now is the chance. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?